following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. Well, that was wonderful singing. Thank you so much for that. And I particularly enjoyed uh, the first song that we sang because I actually was reared in a United Methodist Church for the most part of my childhood. And that was a good Wesleyan hymn that we sang there. Love divine, all love's excelling. We don't sing that too much as Baptists. And I kind of miss it because it's a wonderful song. And thank you for singing that. It was really good. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. In just a moment, we'll turn our attention to the reading of the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 4. But before we do, I have been with you before, although it's been quite some time. I was trying to add up how many years ago it was, and I just know that it's probably a decade ago, maybe or close, that I was here with you uh, preaching for a couple of weeks, and it was an enjoyable time. I really enjoyed the fellowship we had, and had, you know, living, being from South Louisiana and living in Alexandria, you have to come South in order to find good food. The food has gotten better in Alexandria over the years, but it's still not on par with South Louisiana. And you can look at me and tell I value good food. I haven't missed many meals, indeed. And so I love that. But I find, I recognize some of you that we've met before, but not all of you. And I find it's easier for me in any way to listen to someone or to understand just a little bit about who they are. And so uh, let me just give you a brief little introduction. We want to spend the majority of our time, obviously, for the Word of God. But I'm a, I'm native Louisianan, born here, and, and God willing, will die here. I, I love our state. And even though people, we're, we're kind of the butt of jokes with people talking about how we're 50th and everything, we're first in my heart. I love being a Louisianan, and I love Louisiana. And I live here by choice. I've had opportunities to leave, but I've turned them down because I want to stay here and minister the gospel in our state. And so I was, uh, I've been married for, well, let me back up because this goes first, I guess. I'm a proud Estruma High School Indian from Baton Rouge. And every time I give that introduction and I say that, it's guaranteed to bring cheers and jeers from people. In fact, one lady asked me one time, she said, or made a statement, she said, you Estruma Indians, y'all are like a cult. And I said, yes, we are. And if you had gone to our school, you'd be a cult member right in there with us because you would have loved it too. And so it was a great school to go to, and I was blessed to be there. I'm also a proud LSU Tiger. And that's given us reason to cheer and to kind of jeer this year, hasn't it? There's been some di- disappointments, but basically it's been, it's been a good year to be a Tiger. A couple of national championships, and it's been a really good year. Uh, I went to New Orleans Seminary, and that, well, we don't have a mascot there. I don't know what it would be, but if we had one, I'd be a proud one of those two. Married for 43 mostly glorious years uh, to my wife, Jan, my first and only wife, and she asked me one day, she said, baby, which years were not glorious? And I said, well, it's a day here and a day there, but it all adds up after a while, right? And you realize that, I mean, we're grateful for the grace of God in marriage because if it were not for the grace of God, I would not be married right now. I did ask her one time, I married a redhead, and I asked her one time, I said, baby, did you ever think about leaving me? She said, no, killing you, yes, but leaving you, no. 
because I'd want to cash in on the life insurance. And, uh, you know, she wasn't joking. She didn't, she just kind of winked when she said that. And I said, you can't kill me. And she said, everybody's got to sleep sometime. And I thought, oh, my word, I'm married to a redhead. And so, indeed, uh, we, we're just blessed. We have three children. Stephen is married to Amy. And they are your missionaries in Torino, Italy. And they're ministering, uh, planting Italian-speaking churches, and then ministering also to Muslim refugees that have come primarily from Somalia to Italy. And they're really a, a hopeless situation, and they're looking to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Jan and I are going over in uh, November, bringing a small mission team of six over there, and we're going we're gonna to cook for the, for the Muslims. But I've never done this before. We're going to have to cook a halal Cajun food. They're dying to eat Cajun food, so we can't use sausage, okay? So we're going to cook a halal Cajun food. The best thing I can figure is they do eat turkey and chicken, so I guess we're going to have turkey gumbo and chicken jambalaya. But nonetheless, we're going to feed them because of this. If you feed them, it is such an honor to them for you to feed them. They will sit and talk to you for hours afterwards. And so we're going to feed them good Cajun food. Then we're going to sit down and discuss and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ against Islam with them. And they will do that for hours. And so uh, Stephen and Amy Rachel is a band director. She's recently moved to one of the largest uh, band schools in the state of Louisiana, Denham Springs High School. And she's taken that band of about 160. And so she's doing quite well for herself. And then Seth, Seth is my youngest. Uh, Seth managed to cram four years of education into six at Louisiana Tech, and uh, he works in the IT field and is just just having a, a joy doing that. So that's kind of who we are, who I am, and I'm just an ordinary guy. I was a pastor for about 25 years, and then 15 years ago I began to work for you with Louisiana Baptist. And I do a lot of things, but the simplest thing is this. I have the privilege of loving and encouraging pastors because pastors need to be loved and encouraged. And I particularly love your pastor and have great regard for him. And I was so honored when he called and asked if I could come and preach. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. So enough about that. Let's talk about the Word of God. As I mentioned, in just a moment, we'll read from Scripture. If you were going to, going to describe God to someone, how would you describe him? There are those who say, well... You know, God is indescribable. And that may be true in the totality that God is indescribable. But when you think about it, there are descriptive things that we can use and say about God to describe him to other people. And yet, trying to describe someone who's infinite like God, how do you do that? I was reminded of the, par- of the parable or the, the story that's told from, from India of the five blind men that encountered an elephant. And they were describing the elephant. You've heard this before. They're describing the elephant. One, one felt his trunk and said, an elephant is like a large snake. And then the other one felt his leg and said, no, an elephant is like a tree. And the third one felt his side and said, an elephant's like a wall. The fourth one felt his ear and said, an elephant is like a fan that you would use to wave to move air. And the fifth felt his tail and said, no, an elephant is like a braided rope. And you'd say, well, which one of them were right? None of them. Which one of them were wrong? None of them. They're all right at some level and wrong at some others. Through the years, through the centuries, there have been people that have tried to describe who God is, and they almost always get it wrong when they do that. They may be right at some level, but overall they're wrong. For instance, 
There are those in our culture today that believe that God is like a benevolent father, sort of like a Santa Claus. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. And the problem with that is God has already made a list. There's no need to check it twice. And he's found out that all are naughty and none are nice. And so no one's worthy of his blessing, really. And then there are the, there's the deist. You know, the deist says, well, God is a powerful creator who, like a watchmaker, made the world and wound it up and is just letting it wind down. And he's, he's neither personal nor near and has nothing to do with his creation. It's just like this mechanism that's kind of going on and on and on, winding down. There are those who believe that God's like an intolerant tyrant who created all things and then sits there and just kind of laughs and goes, ha, 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 with the suffering of his creatures. The atheist, of course, says there is no God. The Bible calls him a fool. Then there's the agnostic. The agnostic says, well, there could be a God or a God-like creature, but we cannot know who he, she, or it is, so therefore we cannot know much about him, her, or it. Then there's the Buddhist who believes that God is our inner consciousness. There is the the Hindu who believes that God is the sum total of all things. There's the Muslim who worships Allah as God with fear and trepidation but doesn't know him as being loving and kind the way we do. And then there's the Mormon. That's interesting. The Mormon believes that God was once a man like us. And through a series of repetitive reincarnations, then he became holier and holier and holier and holier to when he finally became God and he got his own world with his own creatures, his own people. It's no wonder that the Mormons are at the forefront of of enthusiasm regarding the extraterrestrials because they don't think those are Martians. They think that's Uncle Eddie. And so, indeed, they believe that all of us are potential gods. Now, you know how frightening that is? Look around the room at the person next to you and think what they would be like to be a God. Would you want them to be God in your world? Well, guess what? They wouldn't want you being God either, right? And so it's just ludicrous to think about that. And none of these are even close to the biblical portrayal of God. God has revealed himself in his word to us. We only need to go to his word in order to discover that. And so let's do that tonight. Hebrews chapter 4. I want to read... A few verses for you, but we're going to focus on one verse in particular. So let's pick up in verse 13, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, tonight we ask you to simply do this. Give us ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, a heart to receive, and a will to obey your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I want to draw your attention to that final verse that we read, verse 16. That's going to be our where our attention will be tonight. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. There's some striking things about that verse that are just really unusual. In fact, one man called this verse God's paradox. Because there's so many things here 
two things in particular that stand out that we just say, well, this is not what we would expect when we think of these things. And so God reveals himself to us in such a wonderful way. So let me give you three words tonight. It's really simple. I could have brought outlines, but I didn't. Let me give you three words tonight. For the note takers, this will make it really easy for you. Three words that could be the character of God's throne, the closeness of God's throne, and the comfort of God's throne. See, isn't that easy? The character, the closeness, and the comfort of God's throne. Let's talk about the character of God's throne because history is filled with thrones and those who would seek to occupy them. In fact, history tells the story of people that would give virtually anything, including the lives of other people, in order to occupy thrones. It is a bloodletting when you study the thrones throughout history, the wars that went on in order to occupy thrones. Now, the throne, to ascend the throne, doesn't merely mean that you sit in the seat. To ascend the throne means that you have the the position of sovereignty. A sovereign is someone who has ultimate authority, who is supreme over, over everything else. And this was really illustrated for us a few years ago in Seattle. If you remember, there was the, the group that occupied downtown Seattle, and they created what they called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Do you remember that? It was a brief, I don't know how the abbreviation came, the CHOP Zone. And so in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, they said, we are the boss, we are our autonomous rulers, the city of Seattle is not, the state of Washington is not, the United States government is not, we are our own government. And that lasted for a few weeks, and then they found out who was really sovereign. It turns out, well, the city of Seattle was sovereign over the CHOP zone. It turns out the state of Washington was sovereign over the CHOP zone. And it turns out that the United States government was sovereign over both of them. And so we learned that. David was the great king of Israel, and when his son Solomon became the king, the Bible says in 2 Kings 2.12 that he sat upon the throne of David. Now, he occupied the seat there with David. Does that mean that he was the king because he sat in the seat? Heavens, no. It means he sat in the seat because he was the king. It was his identity that gave significance to the seat. Let me give you an example, okay? How many of you, anybody here like to travel? Anyone like to travel? Jan and I enjoy traveling. Well, I have a victim. I mean, I have a volunteer right here up front, okay? And so, would you play along with me, sister? Remind me of your name again. Joycelyn, that's right. We'll talk to you on the phone this week, okay? So, Joycelyn, Jan and I are taking a, a, a group, maybe six or eight people. We're taking a group, all expenses paid, to tour the British Isles. Would you go with us? I mean, we'll pay for your airfare, your hotel, your meals. We might even buy some souvenirs for you. Would you go with us? Absolutely she would. I would, too. I would go with me, too. And so when we were there, we're in line to go and, and, and visit uh, Buckingham Palace, and while we're in line, well, then unbeknownst to me, well, then I have some ancient relatives in England, which I really do, but I have some ancient relatives that were related to the king. And so the king finds out that I'm in line out here, and he sends his envoy out to me, and he says, hey, come on up here. I said, well, I got all these people with him. Bring them with you. So he says, bring all six of you in here. The king is going to give you a personal audience with him. Would you go? You bet we would. I mean, we'd probably like to read Charles the Riot Act about how he's acted throughout his life, right? And he hasn't acted in a way becoming of a king. And so we go in and we meet with him, but, but he's not there. And so the envoy leads us into this room. He says, look, this is his personal throne room. No one gets to go in here except you guys. I don't know why you're, you're able to go in here. But wait here, 
and the king has been detained, he'll meet you in just a moment. So we're in this room, and there's the throne. It's the throne of the king of England. And let me say, uh, Joycelyn, why don't you go sit on that throne, and I'll take your picture. Would you go sit on the throne? Probably so. I like that's why with adventure, right? So Joycelyn goes, and she sits on the throne, and I take her picture with my phone. Would that make you the king of England? Would it make you the queen of England? No, it wouldn't. Because it isn't the seat that has significance. It's the one that occupies the seat. Do you see what I'm saying? And so in this case, the Bible talks about God's throne being a throne of grace. What's significant about that? We need to look at the one who occupies it to see what the character of this throne is. Now, the word of God proclaims God's sovereignty. We know that's very clear. For instance... The psalmist wrote in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Isaiah cried out, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim to Zion, your God reigns. And in Revelation 19, 6, we're told that there's a voice of many, many voices thundering forth that says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And that's only a selection. There are many, many more verses that proclaim that. The songs we sing remind us of God's sovereignty. We sing songs like this. Come thou almighty king. God is sovereign, right? And we sing songs like this. All hail king Jesus. Jesus is sovereign. He's the king. We sing Jesus shall reign where the sun. He reigns. He's sovereign. Our God reigns. He's sovereign. Joachim Neander expressed it this way, one of my favorite hymns. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. And that's what I hope happens tonight. I hope that you will join me in gladly adoring the God who is our king. He is sovereign. Meaning that he alone is the supreme authority. You may think that you're in control of your life, but you're sadly mistaken. It only takes One bankruptcy, one lost job, one child dying, one illness, one of this or one of that for us to realize. We're not in control of anything. God is ultimately the one that is in control. And we are merely his subjects. God's throne. Here's here's the paradoxical part. God's throne is a throne of grace. Did you hear that when we read that? the throne of grace. That's why theologians call this text a paradox, God's glorious paradox. See, throughout history, thrones were not associated with grace. They're associated with justice. Thrones are where you go to receive justice. In fact, we know this from the word of God because there's the great white throne judgment, right? It's not the great white throne forgiveness, It's not the great white throne grace. It's the great white throne judgment. 
People go to thrones to be judged. The ancient world, whenever kings would go to war, well, then the victorious king would sit upon a throne that was portable they would bring out to the field. And he would sit on that throne, and soldiers would be paraded before him. Uh, some of the soldiers were men that were valiant in battle, and he would give them rewards. Maybe he'd reward them with wealth, or he'd give them a promotion or an honor of some sort. And then there, there were the ones that were captured from the other army. Many of them would be killed summarily, or they would be remanded to slavery, or some of them would even be enlisted to be soldiers in his own army. But then there's the group that would parade by him. They were deserters in battle. And most oftentimes, the deserters were executed. There's one episode that's told to us from the life of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, if you know anything about him or have read or studied anything about him, he was not gracious at all. He was a man of justice. But there's a young lad that was brought before him that cast him down before him. And Alexander said, what are the charges? And they said, desertion in the face of battle, which just absolutely Alexander had no quarter for people like that at all. He would execute men that were were deserted in the face of battle. And he looked at the young lad, and in a rare moment, he was moved with compassion. He looked at the young lad, and he said, what is your name? And the young lad whispered, he said, Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great said, speak up, what is your name? And he said, Alexander, sir. And an enraged but forgiving Alexander said, change your behavior or change your name. And so you see that thrones historically were a place of justice. And yet here, God's word calls God's throne a throne of grace. Now make no mistake about it. For those who have not entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ, God's throne is still a throne of justice. For those who have rejected salvation that God has offered, his throne is still a throne of justice. I have a brother, uh, I have three brothers, two are saved, one is not. And my brother that's not saved, he says, you know, I think I'll just take my chances with God. I'll just let him, when I die, I'll let him add up the goods and the bads and at the Goods outweigh the bads, good for me, and if the bads outweigh the goods, well then shame on me. And I said, brother, you don't understand. You don't have to wait to die to be judged. You're already judged. The word of God says in John 3.17, he that believes not in the name of the Son of God is judged already, is condemned already. And so indeed, whenever we're born into this world and we become aware of our sinfulness and we refuse to repent and turn to God in faith, through Jesus Christ, well then, we're immediately judged. We're under judgment for our sins. So whenever people say things to me like this, I feel like God is angry with me. I say, you're very perceptive. He is. He's not only angry with you, you are his enemy. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because he's made provision for you. So make no mistake about it. For those who have rejected Christ, God's throne is a throne of judgment. But did you read? Do you remember what we read earlier in Hebrews 4, verse 15? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So if God's throne is a throne of justice, how can it here be called a throne of grace? It's because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he has done. 
And so because of Jesus, well, then he has borne the penalty for our sins. And because of that, well, then we can place our faith in Christ and we can receive forgiveness of our sins. And as a result of that, we call that receiving grace from God. One way of thinking about grace, one man put it this way, a little acrostic, which is easy to remember. He said, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And so because of Christ's death, well, then we have enjoyed God's riches at Christ's expense. And because of that, God's throne is transformed into a throne of grace. That's the character of God's throne. It's a throne of grace for believers, a throne of justice for unbelievers. But then the second little word I mentioned to you is the closeness of God's throne. For here he says, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In Jewish life, there was one man who was able to go one day a year into the presence of God. The day was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and the man was the high priest. Then in order to go before there, within the high priest would be ceremonially cleansed with six vats of water, take six different baths with these vats of water. They put on his high priestly garments, which were peculiar garments. They're described in the word of God. And that means they were unique. He'd put on those garments. He'd have among those garments would be such things as they were ornamented with gold and silver figurines. Uh, they were also ornamented with 12 stones on the breastplate, which were the Urim and the Thummim. On his head, head there was a, a band made out of gold that said, Holy unto the Lord. And the high priest, one day a year, would go inside the curtain in the Holy of Holies, would bring with him the blood of the covenant, would pour the blood of the covenant upon the mercy seat, the bimah, which was there where they had the angels, you know, shrouding the beam of the mercy seat with their two angels. One of, both of them, their heads were inward and downward looking at, ever looking at the blood. Their wings were upward and outwards pointed and shattering over the mercy seat. One day a year, one man could go into the presence of God. John Phillips, who's one, who is wonderful at helping us understand the word of God. John Phillips tells a little parable about this, about what maybe could have happened to drive home the significance of that. He says something to this effect. He says, what if when the high priest is walking into the temple and going to go to the Holy Holies and meet with God, what if there's this young lad, maybe a 10-year-old Jewish boy standing nearby who says, when I grow up, I'm going to go in and meet with God. And a temple guard nearby overhears him and he says, you couldn't do that. And the lad says, why not? He says, you'd have to be born of the tribe of Levi. And so the young lad says, oh, how I wished I were born of the tribe of Levi. And when I grew up, I would go in and meet with God. And then the guard, he says, well, no, you'd have to be a descendant of Eliezer, of the house of Eliezer. He says, oh, how I wish that I were born of Levi, born of the tribe of Levi, of the house of Eliezer, and I would go in and I would meet with God. Well, you couldn't do that. You'd have to be a descendant of Aaron. The young lad says, oh, how I wish that I were born of the tribe of Levi, of the house of Eliezer, a descendant of Aaron, and I would go in to meet with God. You couldn't do that. You'd have to be the eldest of your father's sons. Oh, how I wish that I were born of the tribe of Levi, a descendant of Eliezer, of the house of Aaron, and I would go, and, and the eldest of my father's sons, and I would go in to meet with God. You couldn't do that. Why not? Because the lot would have to be cast, and the lot would be chosen, the high priest, one high priest for life. 
life. The lot would have to fall to you. And how the young man said, Oh, I wish that I were born of the tribe of Levi, of the house of Eleazar, a descendant of Aaron, the eldest of my father's son. And the lot were cast, and it fell to me, and I would go in and meet with God. But when Jesus was on the cross, an interesting thing happened. The sky was turned to dark for three hours. There was an earthquake. And when the earth quaked within the veil that separated the holiest place in the world from the rest of the earth was torn in two from top to bottom. It's as though God were throwing the curtains back saying, Look, I'm not in here. I'm out there. It's as though God was saying, the blood of the covenant, the holy lamb's blood is not here. It's out there dropping to the earth on the cross. It's as though God were saying, come on in and visit anytime you want. The veil has been removed. Listen, friend, whenever we go in to visit with God, there are all sorts of voices that will tell us, you can't go in there. Why, there's the voice of Your wives or your husbands. They know all your frailties. And if you don't believe they know them, ask them. They'll tell you. They know them all. There's the voice of your children who have seen you at your weakest moments. There's the voice of your neighbors and your friends and the voices of your co-workers. They're the voices of your enemies. But most importantly, there's your voice. Your voice who knows your secret sins better than any other. Who says, I can't go in there. That's holy ground. When that happens, isn't it great to know that Jesus says, come on in. You're with me. About um, 45 years ago, I was coaching basketball in Baton Rouge in a church league, nonetheless. And uh, I got angry because a referee blew some calls and almost almost injured one of my kids. Could have ended up with a broken neck. And I got angry because he didn't call a foul on it. And I hollered at the ref, and he teed me up. And I hollered at him some more, and he teed me up again. And if you're familiar with basketball, you know when you get two tees, you're gone, right? So I got two technical fouls called on me, which I should have gotten. The first one was intentional. The second one was I was out of control. So they kicked me out of the game, and I said, well, before I leave, let me just do this. And I grabbed a chair, and I hurled it all the way across that floor. They not only kicked me out of the game, they kicked me out of the league. And they should have. They were right doing that. The next day, I called a team meeting, and these were young boys. They were eighth-grade boys, so they had to have their parents come, you know, and to drive them. I met with my boys, I asked their forgiveness, and they forgave me. They thought it was pretty cool, actually. You know? I asked the parents to forgive me, and they forgave me too, but they thought it was pretty cool that I fought for their, their sons the way I did. But nonetheless, I said, no, it was sinful, it was wrong. I could have fought for your sons without such a display in doing that. They forgave me. I went and saw the league managers, and I confessed. I said, look, I'm not trying to get back in the league. I, I deserve to be out of the league. I just want to tell you that the Lord has convicted me. I've asked the players and the parents to forgive me. I've asked God to forgive me, but I need to ask you all to forgive me. And they did. They were very gracious. They said, we hope you'll come back next year. We need passionate coaches, just maybe a little less passion. (laughs) So I went back and coached in previous years. So fast forward about 25 years from that. 
And I'm living in the Baton Rouge area again, and our church needs to have some air conditioning repair work done. And so I just looked in the yellow pages, and for you young people, that means printed out Google, okay? So I, I just looked in the yellow pages to find, you know, somebody who repaired our brand of air conditioning. And I called, and there's a man on the other end of the line, it's a, it's a Mr. Martin. And he says, Stacy Morgan, Stacy Morgan, that name rings a bell for me. He said, uh, did you used to play basketball in this league? I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, man, you were one tenacious player. I said, well, my view was this. When I registered to play on the team, I paid for five fouls a game. If I didn't commit four of them, I hadn't gotten a very good return on my investment. So I just wanted to play hard. He said, yeah, you were a scrapper. He said, did you used to coach in that league? And I said, yes, sir, I did. I said, were you the one that threw that chair across the gym? Yes, sir, I was. He said, I'll never forget that. And I said, well, brother, I'm not proud of doing that. In fact, I'm ashamed of it. I went through the whole story. I told him I met with these and these and these and these, and they've all forgiven me. Obviously, I need to ask you to forgive me. Would you please forgive me? Well, yeah, but can I still tell the story? No, you can't. You need to forgive me. You need to forget about it because of this. God said he would remember it no more. So I appreciate it if you do the same. Let me tell you, when you come before the throne of God, there are going to be all these voices that say to you, you don't belong in here. Get out. This is a holy place and you're not holy. You can't come confidently to God's throne. There are all these voices that will rise up, including the devil. But Jesus is not one of them. He's paid for your sins in total. When he died, he said, it is finished, paid in full. The closeness of God's throne. For the believer, our high priest is Jesus Christ. He's done all the work that's necessary in order for us to be forgiven of sins. And you say, well, wait, you mean I can't help him like with church membership or church attendance, or I can't help him by singing in the choir or leading music or playing piano or preaching or teaching Sunday school? I can't help him with that? No, you can't. You can do those things, but none of that helps forgive your sins. Think about it this way. If you think that anything other than Christ's death helps forgive your sins, what you're saying to God the Father is your son's death was not enough. It's a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? And so indeed, he, t- he bids us to come whenever we come, to come before him. I-, I was starting a new church in the Baton Rouge area many years ago, and we didn't have a building to meet in, and so we met in a brother's home every Wednesday night for prayer meeting, a men's prayer meeting. And we'd go together literally in his bedroom, we'd pray, and sometimes there were as many as 20 men in one bedroom praying. So there are men everywhere. I mean, you just put an extra squirt of cologne on and go, you know, if you've been working all day, because it was tight quarters. We'd lay, we'd, we'd lay down all over the place on the floor. We'd be kneeling around the bed, whatever. Guys were in the bed, actually, because we just needed every square inch. And we'd bow and we'd begin. And Joe was the guy that hosted the prayer meeting. And that we all, I learned early on, even though I was the pastor, he was the leader of the prayer meeting. And we'd wait. We'd just bow before the Lord, and nobody would say anything. And then in a moment, well, then Joe would begin praying. So I'd warn you guys when they come. I'd say, look, don't 
Because, you know, Baptists, we don't like silence. We like to fill the air with our own words. Because if we get silent for too long, God may speak, and then we'll be out of control, right? And so, indeed, we'd be, I said, just bow in silence, don't say anything. And one guy named Jeff came with us and uh, one, one Wednesday night, and he says, well, okay. So we bowed there and didn't say anything, and eventually Joe prayed and began to pray, and then everybody prayed. I mean, it was like a two-hour prayer meeting. Everybody prayed. Well, then the next week we'd go, and J- Jeff just couldn't stand it. We got in there about three minutes, and Jeff said, Dear Lord, and Joe goes, Shh! And Jeff stops, and Joe says, Wait. And Jeff waited. We all waited. You know what I learned from that? I learned sometimes we start on our agenda talking to God, and we fill all the time we spend with him with our words. And the most amazing thing would happen is we would just bow in silence and wait. Sometimes it was a minute. Sometimes it was ten minutes. But we'd wait. It's as though the Spirit of God came and we had another person in our prayer meeting. And you could sense his presence when he showed up. And it was sweet, sweet time together. Let me just encourage you. Consider treating your praying the same way you do breathing. You know, Inhaling is a wonderful thing, but if all you ever did was inhale, you would die. Exhaling is a wonderful thing too, but if all you ever did was exhale, you would die. It takes both to live, and a healthy prayer life involves inhaling, listening to God, and exhaling, talking to God. Lastly, the comfort of God's throne. The comfort of God's throne. See, so what do you get when you get there? That's the question, okay? When we come to God's throne, we come confidently. But, oh, you know what? I, I passed over something I needed to say. Uh, if you have a King James Bible here tonight, well, then your Bible said come boldly before the throne or with boldness. And some people misunderstand that sometimes, and they, they translate that to be brashness. You know, we come before, we can demand things. In fact, one time a guy, I listened to a guy preaching, and uh, he said, we need to storm the throne room of heaven and make our request known to God. And I thought, we don't need to storm the throne room of heaven. I mean, there's lots of things you can storm, but I'd suggest not storming God's throne room. And he says, we just need to demand from God what we want. No, we don't. The only thing we can demand from God is nothing. The only demand we can give to God is that we will not give him any demands. All we can do is cry out for mercy. And so when he says confidence here, Understand, it's not that we have some special relationship with God. We don't. His son does. And we're just with him. We're there with Jesus before the Father's throne. Okay, the comfort of God's throne. What do you get? Well, first of all, we saw this. So that we may receive mercy. Now, misery is the object of mercy and man's misery is sin. And as we saw earlier, we would expect to receive justice from an unthroned king. But because Christ has borne the penalty of our sin, well, then we can come and we can receive grace from him. And so why would we pray for mercy? Well, like the prodigal, we would come back to the father and just be willing to be promoted from pig feeder up to farmhand. But like the prodigal wasn't willing to receive his son or the, the father wasn't really willing to receive the prodigal back that way. Well, then God doesn't receive us that way. We don't merely come in as servants of God. He makes us children of God. 
Why, Jesus is the only begotten Son, and we are His sons and daughters. We are adopted into the family of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ inherits, He shares with us, and we are heirs with Him. And that is an amazing thought when you think about it, that enemies and sinners could become heirs, blessed of God. All of this is possible. Why? Because God's been merciful to us. Jesus told the two men who came to worship, if you remember, there's a Pharisee, which is a very religious man, and a publican, which was a common, ordinary man. And the Pharisee uttered a haughty prayer saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like, well, for instance, this publican, Lord, I thank you I'm not like him. It was an arrogant prayer. It was a pompous prayer. We should never say, I'm glad I'm not like them. You never know. God may make you like them just to teach you what it's like. But instead, this publican comes in, a common man, an ordinary man, and he says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know which one went away justified that day? The publican. Can I tell you, there's never a bad time to pray for mercy. There's never, if you say, I don't know what to pray to God, well, here's a good prayer to pray to God. Lord, I praise you and be merciful upon me. Because there's never a time when we don't need the mercy of God. In fact, if we don't know that we need it right now, we will know that we need it eventually. And so we pray for God to have mercy upon us. And that would be enough. If all God did was have mercy upon us and forgave our sins, that would be enough. But it's not enough for God because God doesn't merely give us the minimal of what we need. God loves us in extravagant ways. And so he gives us not only mercy, but we also receive grace to help in time of need. Did you catch that? Each of us is confronted with challenges in life. I I don't know yours and you don't know mine. But we all know that we've had challenges in life. I mean, one man said the Christian life is like this. You either just got out of a storm, you're in a storm, or you're heading into a storm. Isn't that the case? And indeed, we know that we either just got out of this storm, we're in a storm, or we're heading into a storm. And and so these challenges are more than we can bear. Someone said God would not lay more on you than you can bear. That's not true. The Bible proves it's not true. God will lay more on you than you can bear, but he will not lay more on you than he's willing to bear. The whole point is to drive you to him, to ask him for help, to hide your life in him and to find your help in him. So he says, I'll give you grace to help in time of need. Now, why does God do that? Why does God send storms into our lives? Well, he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that it's to perfect our faith. And he tells us in James chapter 1 it's to strengthen our joy. He tells us in Romans chapter uh, 2 that it's to perfect us, to increase our faith, to perfect us. So God sends these storms because they're good for us. They're trials that we need. And trials are not pleasant, but they're always profitable for us. So what's the point of trials? Why do we have them? Well, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a couple of things that occurred to me when I was just thinking about it. Number one, it reminds us of our limitations and therefore our utter dependence upon him. Isn't it dangerous whenever we get to the point where we say to the Lord, okay, I've got it from here, Lord. 
Boy, watch out. You never know what's around the corner, do you? You never know what's the next day. We don't ever have it from here. In fact, Lord, we need to hide our life in you and utterly depend upon you. Secondly, it reminds us of his capacity to meet our needs. We're faced with these things that are impossible circumstances. There's no way. There's no way out. We cannot see any particular way to get out of this, and we're right where God needs to be because he has a way out. He'll minister it to us in a way that he gets the glory And therefore, he gets all the praise from people, which leads to the third thing. His actions for us confirm that he loves us. He loves us. And they're seen by others. And when they're seen by others, when other people will see how our God loves us, and they praise his name. It's a few years ago, but 2016 was a challenging year in the Morgan home. Uh, my mother-in-law, our sweet nanny, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer the previous year, and she lived about 10 months, mostly miserable months, but lived about 10 months, and then in June of 2016, went to be with the Lord. And then just a couple of weeks after that, well, then Seth, my youngest son, totaled his vehicle, and thankfully, he and the other driver were not hurt significantly, but I wasn't planning on buying another vehicle right then, nonetheless, and so we're thankful he's delivered, but it was a challenge. And so I went to Baton Rouge, found him a vehicle to buy, and convinced my father-in-law to help me get the vehicle back up to central Louisiana. And so he did go up with me, and it rained on us the whole way up there in August of 2016. And if you remember, they had this little thing called the Baton Rouge Floods in 2016. And his was one of the 65,000 homes that flooded in the greater Baton Rouge area. He has Parkinson's disease, or he had, he's with the Lord now, but had Parkinson's disease, and we just thank the Lord that Papa wasn't in his home alone when he flooded. We look back on that, and and so we go back into his home, and after the floods receded, we're mudding out and gutting out his home, and all of a sudden I feel this twinge in my chest and feel this pain all of a sudden and discovered that I was having a heart attack, and so I had a heart attack, and then we went through all the rigmarole, and eventually I had coronary artery bypass surgery and and uh, recovered from that and so 2016 was a noteworthy year you know so we all have those years don't we were kind of marked and say yep that was a memorable one 2016 was a memorable year but let me tell you what god was strong for us on our behalf god was so faithful to us we were reminded that the apostle paul wrote to the philippian church that my god shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory in christ jesus and the morgan say a hearty amen because we stood back and watched god do all of that now i don't know your need but i know the solution draw near to the throne of grace You may have a health need right now. I've got some health needs of my own. This old body's just falling apart. It's breaking down. Draw near to the throne of grace. You may say, but I'm still under the condemnation of my sins. I've never received forgiveness of sins. I've never experienced the deliverance you talked about. Draw near to the throne of grace. I've got financial problems that you can't imagine. Draw near to the throne of grace. I'm harboring unforgiveness. I can't get over what somebody did to me. You don't know what they did to me. I don't have to know what they did to you. I know what you and I did to Christ and he forgave us and we have no reason not to forgive them. Draw near to the throne of grace. What are you going to find when you get there? Mercy for your sins 
and grace to help in time of need. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're just so blessed that you remind us that we have in you everything that we need. I needed to be reminded tonight, Lord, about drawing near to your throne, and I pray that maybe someone else here did too. Help us to realize that we don't come on our own recognizance, but we come in the name of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. And because of Christ, we have confident access to your throne where we can receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Father, help us to take advantage of the access we have to the King of creation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.